Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we welcome to the program a former actor and theater and writing instructor who's currently the director of development at The Story Company, the production shingle of director Tim Story, whose credits include The Fantastic Four, Barbershop, Think Like a Man, and Ride Along. And he's a hugger for sure. We welcome Mr. Doug Griffin. Thanks for coming on the show, Doug. I thank you so much. <laughs> so first off, let's talk about you, Doug. How did you get started in the business? How did you get involved? Again, I know you were an actor, um, and then you were a theater and writing teacher. So how did you get started in the business period as an actor? And then how did you make that transition into development? Let's see. Uh, since I was a little kid, I've loved uh, performing for people. Uh, so I, I remember being uh, nine or ten years old, and my, my older brothers and sisters were involved in theater. Uh, Quincy Jones came by our neighborhood theater group, and he was looking for some singers for a film that he was doing. And I was among a group of little kids. Uh, I think the movie was called The Lost Man. It was with Sidney Poitier, hmm. and they needed some kids to sing the very opening uh, credits, and I auditioned and uh, got the part, and so you can hear me if you can somehow go to some old uh, rare album store, you can hear me on the soundtrack for The Lost Man, hmm. uh, and then I got I got the theater, but oh, this is exciting. So I, I started to get little tiny bit parts here and there. Uh, I was just cute and rambunctious um, and just a lot of child actor things. Um, let's see. Then I um, joined a out of high school. I joined a theater group called the Improvisational Theater Project. It was called ITP, and it was out of the Mark Taper Forum here in Los Angeles. And we were an improvisational theater group that would travel to various theaters across the country and put on improv shows. Um, I got it. I had an agent from there who saw me and wanted to put me in uh, various things. But I, I liked education for some reason. I, I actually, more than the acting bug, I, I liked um, teaching. And so, for some reason, not wanting a career on stage, I preferred to being behind the scenes. And I, I got my degree in theater from UCLA. Um, uh, and I got a master's in education and in writing from LMU and started uh, teaching actors and teaching writers. Um, but my, one of my students, Jim Story, in 1988, uh, started bringing me projects. He wanted to be a director. And even after he graduated, he would continue to bring, continue to bring me projects that he was working on. Um, and I would help him. Uh, I had no idea he would become a big director. A lot of my students wanted to go in theater and, and music. And I, and I had actually asked several who went on to careers on Broadway and recording careers. Uh, but he was the first one who was really intent on film. And he brought me a script for a movie called Barbershop that literally was about a day in a barbershop. There, there wasn't much of a plot but he felt like he could get some attention for this script if he was able to, to fix it and turn it into a, you know, a, a, a real movie. 
So we sat in my house one day and I said, well, what if there's a main character and he uh, wants to sell the shop? And, and, and so we just began to construct uh, a plot like I did for all of his projects. You know, I'd say, oh, what if you changed this and added this? And But uh, interestingly enough, MGM liked it and bought it and it became a film. Um, and that was the beginning of Tim Story's career. He, he, when he worked on Taxi, he sent me the script, and I tried to give some pointers on it, but we won't go into why <laughs> you wouldn't listen to my suggestions. But uh, when he worked on Fantastic Four and the, the follow-up, he would continue to seek my help on, on shaping those projects. Uh, and by the time he got to the second, the sequel to Fantastic Four, he asked me to come work for him full-time. Uh, because I was still teaching. I, he, he'd give me a call and say, I'm about to meet with the president of the head of production at 20th Century Fox, and I'd say, call me back after fifth period. Sorry, I've got a class. Right. So this would make him crazy uh, that he had to wait around because I had, he had very important meetings, but I had a very important fourth period <laughs> class. So he said, let me just hire you so that you are free when I call you and need your help on these projects and I don't have to wait around for your humanities class to be over. So he hired me full time. And since then we've been working together, developing, uh, continue to develop his, his projects and uh, projects all over the city. And I've got a chance to work with a lot of uh, great writers and continue teaching and mentoring writers. As, as a former actor and acting teacher, how does that affect the way you read screenplays? And I know, again, you're also a writer, writing teacher, but, Specifically from an acting standpoint, how do you think that affects how you read and look at screenplays? Here's, here's the one good uh, thing for uh, as a former actor is that I'm able to look at each character um, and flesh it out more. Because uh, actors are very good when they read a script telling you what their character is lacking. A writer is looking at the entire plot and often has a character do something in service of the plot. There's a big story a writer's trying to tell. And so some of the choices that the characters make are just to move the plot forward. When an actor reads a script, he's only looking at his character, and he can spot when his character is doing something false. Because uh, he, he's not even paying attention to the rest of the plot or what the other characters are doing in the scene. He's just following the logic of his character. And a lot of times the actors give great suggestions. What if my character did it this way or said this or that? And they really do actually improve the, the story uh, because he can see when his character is doing something that doesn't make sense or not consistent with something that happened earlier. So as an actor, I'm able to read the characters and think about, now what's the character going through? And I'm able to make suggestions to writers to make the character more rounded, to make the character more real or more grounded. I will tell you the problem with actors when they read a script is they're only looking at their character. Mm -hmm. So some of their suggestions do not service the overall story. They actually say, oh, what if my character stood on the roof and blew this up, you know, and, and they take the plot in a direction it doesn't need to go. So... I, I found a good and bad from listening to actors um, give suggestions. They, uh, they Sometimes they'll spot inconsistencies, but sometimes they'll take the character in, in the wrong direction. What I did, uh, I was, so I, I was a, yes, I was a former actor, and that does help me look at the role in that way. 
Um, but I spent the past 20 or 30 years teaching writing. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm working, I work with writers and, and help them have their stories make sense. So the, my most important contribution is, is, is as, a, as a, a writing teacher. Yes, I can spot when a character becomes inconsistent, but, I can, but the more important than the, the character being inconsistent is the story being consistent. And so that's a bigger contribution. And, and that, I probably stepped on a question that you're going to ask. Well, we'll segue. Um, so speaking of being a writing instructor, as well as working in development, I'm sure you've read thousands and thousands of scripts. What are some of the most common mistakes you see screenwriters make, newer screenwriters make? especially? Wow. Um, okay. So the most common mistake is having a great premise and not knowing what to do with it. Um, most writers think, have a great situation that they can come up with. Ooh, what if a, you're at the Super Bowl and an alien ship landed? Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got it, this great idea, but they don't then know what to do. They then come up with a series of events, but they don't tell me a story uh, about it. They don't pick a particular point of view and... Here, here's what it is. Um, every story kind of begins once upon a time there was a, a family on their way. I'm making this up totally off my head. There's a family <laughs> on their way to the Super Bowl. They haven't seen each other in a long time. Uh, it's finally dad and son's chance to get together and spend some time together. And then this alien ship lands. And now dad and son are, are separated because they're fighting off the aliens or whatever. And it's really a story. That would be a story about reuniting father and son because that's what we started off with. And the aliens are actually in the way of that. They're the obstacle to be overcome so father and son can get back together. What a lot of writers miss is that is that opening? They they don't they don't establish a very good world that has been disrupted that we want to get back together. They because every story doesn't begin until you have established a world. Then then something happens to disrupt that world to throw that off its axis to throw it out of balance, and the character spends the rest of the movie trying to put his world back together. Most writers don't establish an interesting enough world that they want to get back together. All they think of, ooh, what if an alien ship landed? And I don't need to just, but I've said it, so I'm going to stick with it. What if an alien ship landed at the Super Bowl? And so they just have a series of things happen. Okay, an alien ship lands, and then this lady gets killed, and then that usher runs for help, and then the football player is abducted. And they just have a series of things that then happen. But none of them are related. None of them really tell a story. They're just a series of events. And at the end, I'm not, I don't know what story you were telling me. I don't, I don't feel a connection because you didn't really have a story you were telling me. You simply have thought of an interesting what-if situation. Mm-hmm. And most writers don't know how to carry those out and make them uh, an audience connect to it. I mean, those are the, I don't mean most writers don't know how to do that. When I've seen mistakes... So there's a lot of marvelous writers. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but when I've seen mistakes in a script, it's because someone's introduced a premise, and then it doesn't. It's not going anywhere specific. It just goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, 
on the podcast, we have some seasoned writers, uh, writers who are on the blacklist, uh, writers who have strong representation. And then we've also got the newer writer who's uh, just downloaded their screenwriting program and, and started it up for the first time. Um, so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about pitch meetings for, especially for newer screenwriters. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about, as an exec, what your expectations are from writers in pitch meetings? Um, if they're, well, you know, there's a difference in pitching a company, a production company, an idea, mm-hmm. and in pitching a studio, a fully developed idea. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to a production company, which we are, or director, I, and I guess this would be true of any um, actor. Like if you, if you as a writer were thinking, I want to pitch this actor in my, on my idea because if I can get this actor attached, then I can go to a studio and pitch them the fully developed idea. Or uh, you want to pitch a production company. If I can get this production company excited about my idea, then we'll take it to a studio and get, get it funded. Or I can pitch this director my idea. Uh, then we'll take it to uh, a studio. So if you're talking about the f- one of the first steps that writers sometimes go through in trying to get an important party interested in their idea, the important thing in that initial pitch meeting is to um, have a clear idea that, so that, the, that the person can visualize the person that you're pitching can visualize immediately. Uh, a lot of times our, our ideas are too complicated. We, they're too complex when we come into to the room to pitch. You need to be able to give someone a, in paragraph version, here's what it would be. Here is the concept. And you do need to be say, able to say a father and son are on their way to the Super Bowl, and then this is the thing that happens that suddenly throws the world out of balance. Here's the thing. So you, you want to give me a character I uh, can't, that I like. And, and here's, I, I got to tell you, Kevin, and something that you sent me the other day, uh, someone pitched, well, maybe I shouldn't tell you what they did, but so, someone introduced a character like a suburban dad or a suburban mom, and, and I was able to recognize, mm-hmm. okay, I know that person. They said, and then this is what happens. Here's the crazy thing that happens while they go camping. And um, so you want to be able to give me characters I can identify with. And, and I don't have to be like that character, but I just need to be able to recognize them. And then tell me what is the wild thing that happens that topples the world uh, that I, that, so I know what the adventure is that I'll be following. Uh, so in a pitch meeting just at a production company with an actor, you don't have a lot of time. You they hear thousands of pitches, and you want to be able to grab their attentions, uh, their attention, so that they want to then say, "Oh, what happens next? What happens next?" And you want to have a handful of those answers. Now, if you are going into a studio, they will give you twenty, thirty minutes to pitch. Here's the movie, mm-hmm. and um, so that's more than just a two minute, I've got your attention in an elevator. I've got your, and, and, and every writer should kind of have that two minute version, that one minute version that just in case you happen to run into somebody and say, Oh, I've got this great idea. Um, but if you've gotten past that stage and you're actually at a studio, 
you want to be able to set it up clearly in their heads. It's the same two minutes pitch. Here is where this is going to go. Uh, so they can envision it. And then you, you have it set out with, with your set pieces. What are the... I, I'm, fortunately, movie studios think in trailer moments. Right. What are the exciting four events that I can show clips of to an audience? Well, they want to know, do you, are you going to be able to um, satisfy this premise? You've come up with this great premise. What are the four or five main things that are going to happen, the events in this character's life while they're trying to put their world back in order? What are those four or five events going to be? What are those main set pieces that we're going to hang the movie around? So they want to know that you have those. Um, but, they, but you want to describe them in a way that they can see them in a trailer because they want to get an audience to come out and see this. Is this a way that I'm going to make money? So uh, you want to think of interesting, and everything doesn't have to blow up and everything doesn't have to have car chases, but what are those tense or comedic moments, those dramatic moments that makes an audience going to go, ooh, I want to go see that. Um, so in your 20-minute pitch, you want to make sure you, you have those interspersed uh, throughout as you are telling your story from beginning and end. So now I'm not sure if I answered your question, so you can feel free to further quiz me if you want more detail. No, no, that's, that's uh, great. Yeah, we were just talking about pitch meetings, and you covered pitch meetings for production companies you're a part of, obviously, um, but also to studios. And, and they do you made a, a good distinction that they are uh, different um, to some degree. Obviously, the content is the same, but how you present it and how much you present uh, can vary. Yeah. Now, uh, we get a lot of questions uh, from writers in terms of attachments. Does that affect, uh, again, assuming you take a look at scripts, and I know w without representation, because a lot of writers that... Uh, email us don't have representation and yet they're interested in getting an attachment of some kind, an actor. For example, um, I don't know if, if you accept unsolicited material. I'm assuming you don't uh, as most production companies tend to not. Um, right. But for example, if somebody had come to you and they were able somehow to get an actor attached, um, we're not talking obviously Tom Cruise because that's a, you know, an Amy A-lister uh, Brad Pitt or whoever, someone who has a production deal, nothing like that, but, you know, a recognizable actor and bring that project to you. I'm assuming that that, that may, they may be able to leverage that into some sort of manager taking the project on, if not them as clients, but just for argument's sake, uh, for a writer or who was able to get an actor to say, okay, I'm interested. If that script came to you, is that something you would take a look at or you'd still say, you know, for legal reasons, it has to come through a manager and agent. Attachments, um, that's kind of a complicated, there's a, there's a dichotomy there. Mm -hmm. uh, attachments can help you or hurt you. Sure. And I guess you can say that with anything. Cameras can help you or hurt you. But, <laughs> but um, attachments get people's attention. Oh, I've got this director attached. I've got this actor attached or this producer that really that really does get people's attention. That's that's the purpose. Um because 
a lot of people in Hollywood who are in positions to say yes uh, don't trust their judgment. Mm-hmm. So if someone important has read your material or is excited about your material, then they go, oh, it must be good. Someone important, you know, Brad Pitt has read it and wants to do it. So that helps confirm their own ideas. The, uh, you get, there are so many movies that come out a year or, or, or just in a week, uh, 10, 15 movies may come out. You only really hear about five of them. Uh, and one of them is number one. And then there are 10 or 12 movies that didn't do well at all that everyone was behind. Everyone's excited about, and they, and they just didn't perform up to expectations. And, Studios have so many of those where they think this is going to be good and it turns out to not work out that they become wary of scripts. Like what, what's going to be the thing that I can go to my investors and say, yes, please give me 30 million for this or 50 million for this or 75 million for this. What's the thing that's going to assure me of an audience? Cause you don't want to lose your investors money. So if, if you can say, Oh, I've got so, this person or that person attached, then um, that's going to get their attention. The, the downside of that, though, often is you're attaching someone, you, without realizing it, you may be attaching someone to that studio does not like. Mm. And now you've kind of doomed your project because you, it's hard to disattach someone right. once you've got them interested in it. You can't call them, oh, never mind, you're not any good, you're poisoned. So I'm sorry I attached you. Um, so, so it's a precarious thing that you have to be careful uh, about. If you happen to know one particular studio is very excited about a particular actor that they've been going after, then sure, if you if you have some inroads to that actor, or if you have an agent that wants to send that actor that script, if you think you can get them excited about your project, then yeah, you want to walk in with that script and that actor because it gets your script attention uh, and they'll, they'll pay, you know, they'll really read it because uh, cause they know someone very important and excited. But if you don't know for sure that this is an actor or a director that that studio is interested in, it's sometimes dangerous to attach that person to your project. It could doom it before you get going. Uh, and this, a lot of people don't realize that, <laughs> that you sometimes haven't done yourself uh, a favor. Now, uh, production companies, it's, it's still not hard for a studio, it's still not hard for you to go through the route of going through an agency. Um, so if you want to attack someone like a director or an actor, you go through their agent and submit the script. And they really do read them. That's what they're paid to do. So they, they will read it, and if they like it, they will pass it on to that actor or director. And if that actor or director gets excited about it, they may go ahead and attach themselves to that project, and you can take it into a studio in that way. Going directly to the actor, well, going directly to the director or to the production company often doesn't work. Uh, they're kind of scared of reading scripts because they may have a, a similar project that they're working on with some similar theme, some similar similar element. And if they read your script unsolicited and then come out with their own movie later, 
you they are open to be sued. Well, you stole that idea for me, and you know it's it's hard to prove that you were already working on something else. So they don't like to read a script unless it's gone through their agency and and you've signed over all the waivers and done that you know that whole process. Uh, but let's say that you have gone through that process and gone through uh, a director or a uh, actor's agent. Now actors are easier. Actors usually don't have a bunch of scripts <laughs> that they're sitting around about to produce. So you really can run into an actor in an elevator or at a restaurant and, and have your one minute pitch ready, you know, uh, and possibly they'll be interested and say, Oh yeah, that sounds good. Send it, you know, send it to my agent. Uh, so that, that could possibly work, but it, but, um, I can understand a writer wanting to attach someone to a story, but the real deal is just to write a great script. You don't have to have an attachment. If you have an exciting concept, that's a good story and also um, has that hook that studios think will, will get audiences in, in, into the seats. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, so how, how do you, I'm, I'm about to conduct the interview for you, but I mean, so what constitutes a great script and et cetera, that's a, that's a whole other issue. But um, Well, since you asked yourself, what constitutes <laughs> Um, a high concept, and I, I know you've discussed this with so many other writers and uh, people on your show. Um, they, everyone's interested in a high concept script, and I've discussed that with so many writers. Like, what makes something a high concept? It, it has to be a situation that we recognize. But some there's a there's some unusual twist that really makes you go, oh my goodness, what's gonna happen next? You you've introduced let me um, let me go back to something easy like uh, nuns on the run. So way back before Whoopi Goldberg and her nun movie, how funny I can't remember what it was called. Um, just the idea, you know, nuns were everybody knew what a nun was. And sister act, sister act, act, thank you. So the idea of someone witnessing a murder and now being on the run and hiding in a convent, that's like, wow, that I haven't seen that before. You've seen someone on the run and someone hiding. That's not it's so it's not like you have to come up with a brand new concept that no one's ever heard of, you know, pancakes that attack children or something. You have to come up with something crazy, but uh, a concept we're familiar with, I witnessed something I shouldn't have, and now I hide uh, this kind of escape story. Uh, but to think that you have to hide in a convent, well, that presents its own problems. Um, and and, and that's, that's something we all recognize, and we all go, oh, what's going to happen there? That's, that's high concept in that all people from all um, different quadrants, we call them, you know, young, old, men, women, black, white, Asian, it doesn't matter. They, everybody knows what a nun is. Everybody knows what it is to be on the, on, the, on the run. But none of us would actually know what to do. You have to go to see the movie to see, well, how is that going to work? Because she's in a convent and people in the convent 
are, are you know, she's going to have her own problems there. Uh, and how will these nuns ever defend themselves if the criminals actually show up? Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you have to go see the movie to find out how it works. It's interesting enough. It's common enough and intriguing enough that you want to see. Well, that's I, I want to know how that works. Um, so a high concept, it just needs to be something that interesting enough we are familiar with, but there's some, a spin on it, a twist on it, that it's a new situation. It becomes a new situation. Uh, a high school teacher in Breaking Bad, you know, somebody trying to raise money for their family is not new, but a high school teacher who decides to sell crack in order to uh, raise money for his family and then gets in over his head. We're like, oh my God, what's he going to get out of the situation? Because he's just some high school teacher. It, ordinary people put in extraordinary circumstances is always interesting. That doesn't have to be it. It could be an extraordinary person who's suddenly forced into ordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. But we just have to recognize it has to be familiar enough, and then you put a spin on it. And I can't answer the question. I've got to go see the movie or I've got to watch the series in order to see how that works out. A lot of problems come up when we bring something that's too familiar. You already know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Or at least we think we do. We hear the concept and we can write the rest of it. We, we already know. So I don't have to go see the movie because you haven't put them into a unique enough situation uh, so that I need to go and see, well, what did they come up with? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a series, eight or no orange, orange is the new orphan black? orange orphan black. Orange is the new black on Netflix. No, no, not orange is the new black. Okay. Uh, orphan black or orphan oh, orange. On the BBC. Yes. Yes. Isn't that funny? Um, so I said I'm sorry, I can't remember the title of it, but it's fantastic concept of someone who is on the run. And puts herself in someone else's life. She thinks, oh, this is the perfect place for me to hide. This girl and I look, happen to look alike. And I can be her for a few days while I'm on the run. She, she's dead. No one knows she's dead. I'll make everybody believe that I'm the one that died. I'll take over her life. And now I'm safe. And when she gets into this girl's life, she's suddenly being shot at and all this other stuff is happening and they, and she can't convince anyone now that she's not this person. She, 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 she spent too much time convincing that she was. So now she's inherited these horrible problems. How am I going to get out of this? I don't even know why she's being shot at. I don't even know what's going on in this girl's life. I've actually escaped. I jumped from the frying pan into the fire and I don't know as a viewer, I don't know why she's being shot at. I don't know what's going to happen next. I need to tune in. Uh, in order to find out. Now, I'm picking uh, escape. All three of my examples actually were escape stories, and so that's a flaw. I didn't, it could have been redemption stories. It could have been other types of stories. But uh, and I'm just saying we recognize being on the run, but you want to put them into a unique enough situation uh, that we, we don't know how it's going to turn out. That's a high concept. You want to have that in the opening pages of your script, that makes people keep going. And uh, a studio thinks, it's a great story, first of all, and a studio thinks, I can sell that. I can sell the intrigue of that moment, and people will come and watch it. Mm -hmm. Now, on your third and fourth film, you can write a more complicated um, Inception-type plot that Christopher Nolan gave, because now I'm going to see 
Inception because of Christopher Nolan. I trust him now. Right. But Christopher Nolan's earlier movies were more high concept. I forget his first film where the, the guy was living his life backwards. Memento. Memento, yeah. right. It was an easier concept. It was the guy who forgets two minutes later. So he's involved in the, some sort of espionage or murder thing. He's not clear what he, he knows he's involved in something, but he can never remember because he loses his memory after, you know, two or three minutes. That's the gimmick. That's the concept. And I want to see how that's going to work out. Right. Um, but you, you, it would take you 30 minutes to explain it. Inception. And that's why it took him that long to get that film made. A lot of writers want to jump to the more complex film first, and they're just going to have a hard time getting that made. Uh, he's only able to get Inception made once we trusted him and knew he's going to tell me a good story, even if I don't even understand it. I just need to know the title. In fact, Christopher Nolan has a movie coming out now, Interstellar, that I'm just going because it's called Interstellar and Christopher Nolan's name is on it. I have no idea what it is, but he's, I know he's going to tell me a good story. So, but you have to earn that as a writer. Right. Uh, when you're first starting out, you need to present a project that's easy to understand with a great hook that says that tells me right away it's a fun story. Uh, and if a writer can do that with the script, come up with a great premise, a great setup, people that I recognize, and then putting them in a situation that's unique, uh, then and the studio will will read it and want to make that film. Hope, you know, supposedly. Right. No, that was a, a very good explanation of uh, you know, high concept and what it actually means. Because I, I do think that that's one of those terms that's sort of thrown around that especially newer screenwriters don't tend to understand as well. They think high concept is big explosions or just big budget when it actually, you know, obviously does tie into the sellability of it based on, you know, that twist that what driving force of that movie is you know can i sell this can i see this trailer is it something that audiences will want to go see as opposed to being sort of this concept of budget or it doesn't have anything to do with that per se no there have been a lot of very complicated big budget films that didn't do well because an audience said i don't get that i don't understand what it's about not interested in seeing it or they spent a whole bunch of money, but an audience has thought, I've seen that movie before. I already know how that's going to work out. So right. they didn't go see it. So it has nothing to do with budget. It just has to do with creating, interestingly, a familiar situation, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's redemption or revenge. Uh, you know, you took my daughter, <laughs> and I'm going to go after you, Liam Neeson. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. Uh, that, I mean, it's a situation that we recognize, a revenge story, doesn't have to be escape, a revenge story or whatever. But in the trailer, Liam Neeson says to the killer, instead of, oh, my God, please, daughter back, oh, but he says, I'm coming after you, there's nowhere to hide, you won't be able to get away from me, here's what I'm going to do to you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you, you know, he's actually threatening, he's actually the one in charge, there's actually no fear so this is a, uh-oh, they messed with the wrong guy. I wonder if the kidnapper is going to get away because this guy looks like he means business. And that was a twist that we hadn't heard someone say before. So they took a familiar situation in Taken, uh, but they, the twist was the character and how he handled it. It's like, ooh, I want to see that. That sounds cool. So 
you want to take a familiar situation and then add that twist that makes it unique. But I need to be able to visualize it in two sentences. And that's the importance of the log line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what the log line does. Is, is it helps us visualize. Uh, I need to be able to visualize it in just a few sentences. And if it takes more than that to explain your movie, it's going to be too complicated for a studio to buy. Right. If a good movie, it's just they'll be hesitant on it because it's not easily explained. Mm-hmm. Now, do you want to ask me about log lines since I brought that up? We actually, uh, by the time this airs, we'll have published the article on log lines. Uh, but if ah. you have something specific you want to discuss about log lines, no, I'd love to get your take on log lines as you know, in terms no, of. No, I, I, and it's all, I, all, and all I'm saying is that's kind of the purpose of a log line, mm-hmm. more than just being that one or two sentence thing that sums up your movie. It's good training for the writer to be able to express what the movie is about. Mm-hmm. If you can't get it down to two or three sentences, it may be too complicated. The story that you come up with may be too complicated. Or you don't have a full grasp of exactly what it is that your story is about. Exactly. Exactly. So it's good training for you to force yourself to narrow your story down to what essentially is what my story about. Mm-hmm. It's about this father and son escaping the blah, blah, blah. You know, that's, what it, that's the essential thing that I need to be following all the way through. Right. And if I have twenty, if I have five or six different things I'm trying to stuff into this log line, then you may have a story that is too complicated. And uh, so it's good. It's just good for the writer. The log line is good training for the writer to help them understand what the essential, what the story essentially is about. Okay, so I'm done hijacking you. <laughs> um, we've got a couple of listener questions I want to throw your way. Um, the okay. first is, how much do you consider budget when reading a script? How much you consider budget when reading a script? Wow. Well, if it's from a novice writer, a first-time writer, you I, actually—I I mean, obviously, anyone first reading a script is just thinking, "Is this a good story? Is this, is this the story I want to tell?" Mm-hmm. I, I am thinking, "Is this an intriguing story?" My the director I work for is thinking more like a studio. Is this a story that people will want to come see? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what you think first. And then you think, considering who we might be able to get for this film, uh, is it, is this reasonable? Uh, is, you know, will, will a studio look at this and think, oh my God, this is too much money. Uh, so you might, you know, depending on what you think you can do with the story and who you think you might be able to get and what production company you might be able to, uh, get to, you know, what studio, et cetera, how you think that then you, then you start to consider things like budget, but not at first reading. And, and I don't think a writer should worry about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a writer should write the best story they can because if it's fantastic, you know, if it's Titanic and it's just a wonderful story, then the studio will, will, will spend whatever money it takes uh, to, to tell that story. Right. Now, here's a question. I'm going to read the entire question because it seems to have a lot of moving pieces. And uh, yeah. anyway, I'm going to just throw it at you and just see what, what comes of it. What contractual elements constitute a mutually beneficial, they left out a word, I think, either agreement or option. Uh, for example, a dollar for a six-month option for a development period after which 
the quote, well-connected producer promises to bring the project to a studio or financier. Are we to expect such agreements are now more the norm versus spec buyouts? Conversely, what is an example of a free or low-end remuneration option term agreement the writer should steer clear of? So there's a lot of different things in that. Um, okay. If you say that one more time, I think I got it. But you, I don't want to miss the... Right. the I, um, what contractual elements constitute a mutually beneficial agreement, for example, a dollar for a six-month option for a development period, after which a well-connected producer promises to bring the project to a studio or financier? Um, okay. Should we stop on that first part? Y- yeah, sure. Do you want to answer that uh, first and then jump? Yeah, sure. That's, that's, this is, that's up to the individual person and, and producer. Um, I have... Uh, friends who are producers that I was excited enough that they were shopping around my work or, uh, or a friend's work, you know, mm-hmm. that sure you've, you've got connections and you want to go out there and shop this around for the next six months. Then here, yeah, sure. Here's a dollar, you know, I'll option it to you for a dollar or for $10 or whatever. Um, because you, you have someone who's trying to get your work shown. Obviously, if they're able to sell that, then a studio will give you all the money that you know you deserve. Um, so some, so sometimes you don't want to be a hindrance to your script being shopped around by demanding a certain amount of money. Now, if and that's just your personal taste, you might give them a three month or six month option and say, yeah, for you know a hundred bucks or one bucks, a dollar, please feel free to if you like this script, shop it around. If that continues and you feel like you're being exploited, um, you know, they ask for another six months, another six months, another six months, then I can understand where you personally may feel uncomfortable. But if you, so that's kind of up to your own personal instinct. That's why God gives everybody instinct. So if you feel this is not right, then, you know, I gave you your six months and I'm going to go to somebody else. Then, then that's, then that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, but, so ending with the six, let's go to the next part of the question and see if I was at all in the ballpark for what they were answering. Um, the next part of the question is, are we to expect such agreements are now more so the norm versus spec buyouts? Um, well, I, I would say so. Um, if someone is really confident about your script, they may want it, and they and if it's a big company, they may want to just buy it from you. Okay, now I own it. So thank you very much, and I'll do whatever I want with it. Because now, because once they buy your script, they own your script, and I'm going to bring in this writer to fix it, and I'm going to change this element and that element because you've sold your script away. So that's fine if that's what you feel more, you know, comfortable with. But I, I think, yeah, the the one dollar option for people who are. A studio is not going to do a one dollar option. They've got the money. If they like a script, they're going to buy it. Not. But if you're talking about a production company or producer, um, I think that is more the norm that they simply option and see what they can do with it, than than buying your script and sitting on it. The option sometimes works more in the writer's favor because you're giving them a time limit. Once once they've bought your script, yes, you've made your money, but they might sit on it, you know, and give up on it but they own it mm-hmm. and, and you might rather have the option 
it out. So that is the six months you get it back and you can give it to somebody else that you feel stronger about. Because during that six-month period, you may have run into a writer or director or a different producer who you feel more confident in. But once you've sold your script, yes, you've made your money, but if they can't do anything with it, it's theirs. So I guess, again, that just fills on your personal instinct in the situation. Mm-hmm. And the next part of the question is... And the final part of the question is, conversely, what is an example of a free or low remuneration option term agreement that the writer should steer clear of? Free or low, what kind of agreement? Remuneration. I'm assuming this means, you know, low compensation. Well, I guess a long term one, right? <laughs> a dollar for three years? I don't know. Uh, right, yeah. You don't want to give away your script option for too long. Right. Or, or, and again, you can give it to the same person over and over, but, you know, they can report back to you and say, here's what I tried to do and here's what I'm going to try to do next because I have it for another six months. So you don't want to be in these long-term uh, agreements uh, because you just, you know, but again, you don't want to d- demand some price for your script that then makes people hesitant to shop it around mm-hmm. because your, your, point, your whole goal is to get your script to rent. So a producer shopping your script around is, is as as good as an agent shopping your script, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, possibly even better. So uh, you don't want to give a long-term agreement, but the whole point is to be read. It's to be read, you know, and then once you, it just takes selling one thing and then suddenly everybody thinks you're so legitimate and you're just as talented as you were the day, as you were the day before you sold it. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, when you sell things, your phone starts ringing, and oh, <laughs> you know. So, so it kind of it's a situation of like an actor. You just do whatever you can to get the part. Well, not you know right. within reason, but you want to get that first part or get that first sell. And then after that, uh, you you know people are very impressed with people who have sold something. That's very Especially, true. And it's they're like- even more. Yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, it's very true. It's like uh, nobody wants to be the first one in the pool. But, you know, as far as an agent or manager, they can say, oh, he sold blah, blah, blah to uh, Valhalla or he sold this to Fox. And all of a sudden, yeah, you're looking in a different light. If you sold something, you're a sold writer as opposed to just a writer. Yeah. And people read that same script and suddenly they're so impressed with right. it. You know, a script that you've been trying to sell for years. But once they hear that you've sold... It's like a... A producer who looks at an actor's resume. I've actually heard producers say that they look at the resume to see who else hired you. It's like, I've watched, they, I've hired a producer to say, I watched them act. I can't tell who's better than who. When I hold an audition, I bring a bunch of actors in. They're all good. So I look at their resume mm-hmm. and see who else hired them. And then I go by that. So they're, you know, oh, so-and-so hired you for something. Okay, then you must be good. And it's the same thing. Oh, you, so you sold a script to this person? All right, so now you're legitimate. Right. So your script that I didn't like yesterday, I suddenly like today. Yeah. So it just, you know, so that's why you want to go ahead and get people the freedom, as much freedom, as much rope as they need to sell your project and, and shop it around. If you're able to get a producer interested in it, uh, you shouldn't get hung up if you can help it on all the financial dealings and whether or not this is a good deal or is I'm being, am I being taken? You, uh, there's a point where you kind of have to be just grateful that someone's taking the time to shop your thing around because it just takes one sale and your life changes. Yeah, I think they may have been also implying there are some shady producers, semi-pseudo-managers out there who try to get 
long-term options for a little money or try to get rights to things for a little money just, you know, by fleecing young writers, inexperienced writers who don't know. Uh, so he may have been touching base on a little of that. But again, legit producers, legit executives, managers and agents, they don't necessarily know. You know, they wouldn't do that, most of them. And they, I don't think that you're really familiar with those types of shady agreements even. So to be uh, able, Yes, I mean, yeah, actually, unfortunately, I've been sheltered from that. Uh, part of it because we were lucky enough to get we were lucky early right in our career so we kind of skipped that phase um now we've got a uh, rapid fire it's, we're headed towards the uh the home stretch here um okay some quick fun questions which of these storytellers you like that uh do you enjoy reading the most charles dickens william shakespeare or seth MacFarlane? oh that's okay uh charles dickens okay um, who would be more interesting to meet at a party, assuming they were still alive? Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy author Douglas Adams, author Douglas Adams, uh, famed actor Douglas Fairbanks, or legendary General Douglas MacArthur? <laughs> the guy who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams. I got it. Um, yeah. And your favorite mythological beast, a dragon, unicorn, or a griffin? Wow. That's, that's a good question. Um, a dragon is so awesome. They're just awesome. They fly and breathe fire, so they're <laughs> awesome. So I'd say a dragon and not a griffin, even though I'm a griffin. Nice. I never understood what a griffin was. Um, do you have any last thoughts or advice for screenwriters out there? Uh, don't give up. Keep writing. Uh, a friend of mine uh, wrote every day. He, he just got up and just keep writing. No one was reading his stuff, but he got better and better. He just would get up every morning, give himself a schedule, and never stopped rewriting and writing and trying to do this and uh, ended up working on the X-Files as one of their executive producers. And I said, oh my God, how did you get so good? I knew you were in high school and you weren't that good. And he said, I just, I just never stopped. I, I wrote every day and just got better and better and better at my craft. So if you love writing and you're doing it because you love it, just don't stop. Don't stop. I don't even want to discourage you. Just keep going. Keep getting better. Great advice. Really good catching up with you, Doug. Uh, I appreciate you coming Thanks. on the show. Sure, my pleasure. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsinscribed.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribe. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribe. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening.